Und das ist auch eine ähm, Section, Section on Indian Philosophy with Axel Fussi. Axel Fussi comes from Innsbruck and his talk examines modern and postmodern identities in light of Indian philosophy. I'm glad to have you here and you can please start with your talk. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming out. Uh, it's really a privilege for me to, to speak here because it's an, uh, it's a, an opportunity to speak before a forum that is uh, much more knowledgeable than I am. And uh, I, I should like to extend my thanks to the organizers and initiators, initiators of this conference, in particular Andreas Oberwandrachach and the committee for accepting my proposal. And last but certainly not least, Mr. Jamra Sony who was uh, so kind to plant the first seeds of Indian philosophy in my mind many years ago. And uh, <coughs> also encouraged me to send in my proposal. So the paper, in this paper I will address questions of identity and modernity and in postmodern theories against the backdrop of ontological positions of the Yoga Sankhya uh, philosophy, uh, system in Indian philosophy. So let me begin with a brief, brief look at the concept of modernity as, as far as I could uh, grasp and understand it. In using the term modernity, I will single out the following three intellectual, cultural, or political shifts that took place in the West since the Renaissance. First, the emergence of a linear concept of history as the basis for the idea of progress. <coughs> Second, the radical changes regarding the relation of human beings to the world and nature, and the ensuing endeavor to exert rational and technical control over their world. Third, the emergence and self-reassertion of an imminent, supposedly autonomous subject as the executing agent of the developments mentioned above. The historical peculiarity of these developments is addressed in Husserl's question whether European humanity bears within itself an absolute idea rather than being merely an empirical anthropological anthropological type like China or India. It could be decided whether the spectacle of the Europe Europeanization of all other civilizations bears witness to the rule of an absolute meaning, one which is proper to the sense rather than to a historical nonsense of the world. He continues by asking whether the telos was inborn in European humanity at the birth of Greek philosophy is merely a factual historical delusion, the accidental acquisition of merely one among many other civilizations and histories, or whether Greek humanity was not rather the first breakthrough to what is essential to humanity as such, its entelechy. One of the distinctions Husserl draws between Greek and non-European philosophies that Greek philosophy is the first, supposedly the first, to pursue purely theoretical aims as opposed to Indian philosophy where the theoretical is important, mainly with regard to its supporting soteriological claims or aims. However, I'm more concerned here with the synopsis, tracing of possible similarities between Indian and Western thought. Nietzsche, in Beyond Good and Evil, remarks that the strange family resemblance of all Indian, Greek and German philosophizing speaks for itself clearly enough. Where there are linguistic affinities, then because of the common philosophy of grammar, I mean due to the unconscious domination and direction through similar grammatical functions. It is obvious that everything lies ready from the very start for a similar development and sequence of philosophical systems. So far Nietzsche. 
A synopsis of Western <coughs> and Indian thought seems interesting and fruitful to me because the modern concept of the subject as an autonomous self or individual ego as it has become enshrined in modern political, legal and economic practices and institutions seems to have reached its nemesis. Postmodern theories, be it in philosophy, literary or cultural studies, have made clear that an assumed essentialist identity of the immanent subject is in reality a construct. Deconstruction could be summed up simply by saying that all seemingly solid givens are but a snapshot taken in the process of becoming, a becoming that itself is subject to countless historic, cultural and biographical contingencies. However, we would maintain that <coughs> with Dines, uh, one, of the, one of the authors that I quote, uh, that the metaphysical difference between autonomous subject and its historical cultural context does not imply the end of autonomous subjectivity as such, but rather asks for re-gulching the reflexive capacity of situated subjects. The importance of this re-gulching lies in what we find ourselves confronted with the paradox Sorry, the importance of this regulging lies in what we now find ourselves confronted with the paradox that although the subject is claimed to have become untenable, we nevertheless still operate within a political and legal framework built on the assumption of an autonomous enlightened subject that is capable of managing its affairs in a rational <coughs> and responsible way. Let me now turn to one of the first aspects of what in the West came to be understood as modernity, the idea of progress. In this section, I will follow entirely Jakob Taube's uh, Occidental Eschatology, who sees the idea of progress as the result of a series of ontological shifts that in part are the result of the transference of soteriological prophecies from the transcendental to immanent historical reality. According to Taubes, this development has its roots in the prophecy of the Promised Land and the ensuing diaspora of the Jewish people in antiquity. Taubes maintains <coughs> that the diaspora is essentially the departure from a static conception of the cosmos, conceived of as eternal recurrence, the repetition of history in cycles. But this constitutes not only a dramatic departure from the cyclical, eternal recurrence of the same, but also from the related idea of the cosmic great year, the aeons of which are now, in this pursuant uh, in this diaspora, are now reinterpreted as successive periods of a single history, acts in a drama, a route to travel towards an end in time, coming with the arrival of the Messiah. This linear end-oriented concept of time had been, according to Taubes, suspended by the birth of Christ the Messiah. All of a sudden, the hope <coughs> for redemption seemed to have been fulfilled in his presence. Taubes writes that the entire history of Christendom arises from the disappointment of those, disappointment of those expectations, that is, the obvious continuation of history and the ensuing necessity of postponing the epiphany of God's kingdom on earth. This postponement clears the way for a linear progression of history infused with a hope that would inform many of the utopian ideas in the West up to the present day. In the fourth century, Augustine would proclaim the concurrence of the spiritual and immanent spheres in the Civitas Dei 
The stasis is then again transformed into a dynamic process by Joachim of Fioris, who interprets the biblical tr trinity as a progressive succession of the ages of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Taubes. In so doing, Joachim sets his sights firmly on the essence of the modern age, which he Christians as the millennium of revolution. He continues, the history of European eschatology being history's most intimate unfolding is orchestrated by the history of the European revolutions, which in turn is identical with the history of the loss of Europe's Christian substance. Eventually, the succession of the three ages would then be reinterpreted by Hegel as the dialectical movement of or within the world spirit. The idea of the subject in Western history, <coughs> inextricably tied to the development of the idea of progress, is the gradual emergence of the idea of an autonomous subject, the individual person, the I, with its peculiar connotations of personality or personhood, partly rooted in the theater of antiquity, the person as a mask, and later the Christian idea of God as a trinity of persons, with Christ in the stubborn role of divinity and humanity. The subject was to then become the conceptual basis for a number of modern institutions, be they political, legal, or economic. Political in the sense that the individual in modernity is increasingly considered to be entitled to certain rights, starting with the Magna Carta's habeas corpus in 13th century Britain, Declaration of Independence of the United States in 1778, the Declaration of Human Rights in the French Revolution in 1789, and with Kant's notorious definition of what is enlightenment being published halfway between the two. However, the optimism of enlightenment, together with its harbinger, the self-conscious autonomous subject and the idea of progress, eventually met with skepticism, <coughs> notably with Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, who prepared the ground for psychoanalysis in assuming the existence of an unconscious mind. In 1917, Freud, in a general introduction to psychoanalysis, lists three insults, blows or outrages against humanity's naive self-love, as he calls it, <coughs> first by Copernicus, the second by Darwin, and finally, the third by himself. He, and subsequently his heretic heir apparent, Carl Gustav Jung, contributed substantially to the shift from perceiving the subject, or ego, as a solid conscious entity, to understanding it as a rather dynamic, fluid construct subject to the hidden workings of the unconscious. As you know, the rift between Freud and Jung occurred over their framing of the concept of libido, Freud's more narrow interpretation of libido as exclusively sexual, with its political implications, would be expanded by Jung into a concept that connects the individual psyche to what he would come to call the collective unconscious, structured by the archetypes that could be interpreted as general structures of human experience. <coughs> so, eventually Jung would postulate another deeper psychological entity that he called the self, a term which he says to have chosen in designate, to designate the totality of man, the sum total of his conscious and unconscious contents, and as he adds, in accordance with Indian or with Eastern philosophy in particular, the metaphysics of Indian philosophy where the self is referred to by various names such as Purusha, Atman, or Chiva, etc. 
Jung refers to the necessity of drawing parallels between metaphysical concepts and the particular states of mind he encountered in his clinical and therapeutic work, and that he considers these parallels as important because it is possible through them to relate so-called metaphysical concepts which have lost their root connection with natural experience to living universal psychic processes so that they can recover their true and original meaning. In this way, the connection is re-established between the ego and projected contents that were formulated as metaphysical ideas. So this was uh, a quote from, from According to Jung, this connection is brought about by what he calls the transcendent function, which plays an important part in the process of individuation, which he defines as liberating the self from the false veils of the persona, on the one hand, and from the suggestive power of subconscious images, on the other. Let me now turn to a brief outline of Yoga Sankhya philosophy. Yoga Sankhya forms one pair of the six orthodox systems of Indian philosophy. Sankhya's origins coincide historically approximately with the beginnings of pre-Socratic philosophy in the 7th, 6th century before Christ. Sankhya is mainly concerned with the enumeration of the various ontological constituents of reality, the so-called tattvas, starting with the duality of Purusha, the principle of transcendental consciousness, and Prakriti, immanent material principle. The evolutes of the latter provide a basis for an assumed purely projective entanglement of the former of which later more. It should be noted that we are dealing here with the most abstract form of ideas stripped of all their mythological connotations such as Prakriti, as Shakti for instance, Shakti the creative power of which libido is an important aspect. Yoga is considered to be Sankhya's practical complement, a regime of corporeal, corporeal, mental and spiritual disciplines of the individual's mind deemed indispensable for, indispensable for experiencing moksha or liberation. As mentioned before, it is crucial to understand that ultimately all theoretical and practical endeavors of Indian philosophy serve this sociological aim. Here we see a fundamental difference between Western and Indian thought in modernity and in tandem with the idea of progress, understanding of the laws of nature in order to exert control and the continuous effort of overcoming the shortcomings of imminent existence still feature prominently and meanwhile, of course, globally on the agenda, although the dialectics of the project of enlightenment have become obvious and tangible. As mentioned above, Yoga Sankhya postulates a fundamental dualism of a principle of consciousness, Purusha, and this material principle, Prakriti. The consciousness principle is thought to consist of innumerable, innumerable individual minds, perhaps similar to the monads of Leibniz, who are, quote, nothing but a simple substance which enters into compounds. Being a purely enumerative description, and without further ado, Sankhya contents itself to stating that the sheer presence of Purusha engenders an evolutionary process with Prakriti through which the latter evolves in a series of emanations. Prakriti develops from its potential state of Abhyakta, indistinct, not manifest, into the state of Vyakta, developed or evolved. The first evolute in this state of Abhyakta is Mahat or Buddhi, translatable as intellig intelligibility, pure reason, and ascertainment 
in fact, this Prakriti's capacity to reflect the conscious light of Purusha. From Bodhi involves Ahankara, the eye maker, constituting the immanent basis for the project of transcendental identity, which simultaneously and logically established the non-eye, that is, the immanent duality of subject and object. From Ahankara evolves manas, the perceptive and rational mind. Parallel to and constituting the dynamics of these evolutive emanations is the threefold process of the gunas or qualities. The gunas are called sattva, rajas, and tamas. Max Müller in his Six Systems of Indian Philosophy says that guna is to be understood not only as quality, but rather as something substantial by itself, so that the gunas become in fact the component constituents of nature. And he continues, we can best explain them by the general idea of two opposites in the middle term between them, or as Hegel's thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. The most important point in understanding the sociological implications of Yogasankhya is a telos, already briefly mentioned above, inherent in the dialectical process that governs the evolution of Prakriti. Purush Arta is the ontological vertical axis of Prakriti, on the one hand providing the opportunity for the embodied reflections of Purusha to liberally indulge its projections of desire and control, yet setting limits to this tendency by entangling it in ever more complex antagonisms while simultaneously unfolding ever higher degrees of imminent freedom if the human being, by faculty of its developing reason, supports Patriti's attempt to reintegrate her evolutes into her most pure original form, Buddhi. Buddhi reflects the light of Purusha in its most pure form. It now becomes the last stage in this process of reversal in which, in one last final act of Kaivalya, that is, identification with itself, Purusha is realizing its detachment from Prakriti. In Indian thought, the human being derives its particular and central position from the postulate that consciousness begins to emerge in the reflective capaci capacities of the immanent mind of the individual human being. In using this capacity, that is, developing reason, the human being or individual mind becomes a pivotal agent in the process of co-evolution that, as we will see, can potentially lead to ending the entanglement of transcendental consciousness in the evolutive process of Prakriti. Now, let us look into possible correspondence of the main categories of Sankhya, in particular the first evolution of Prakriti with concepts of mind, reason, identity, developed in the West. The first evolute of Prakriti Buddhi has plausible parallels with the notion of the Heraclitian Logos or Nous, whose notorious stanza on war being the father of all things might be just one layer of interpreting the imminent strife of opposites. In general, Buddhi may be identified with reason, Ahankara, as the substratum for the construction of individual subjective identities that pervades all living entities, whereas manas would be equivalent of rational, that is measured, understanding. Buddhi represents the faculties of reflection, intuition and decision, which is always an overcoming of conflicting opposites. Buddhi is also providing the basis for the hiatus of reflection in our minds. The dialectics of enlightenment, or as Baudrillard would call it, the imminent reversal, is due to a far-reaching confounding of understanding or intellect with reason. 
Intellect, or more specifically manas in Sankhya, is, like its ontological substratum, a hankara, subject to the dialectical workings of the gunas, that is, the enantiochromatic dynamic of opposites. Thus, manas, or intellect, is reason modified by a hankara, that is, by duality. A hankara as the basis for the fleeting construction of an immanent subject that erroneously assumes autonomy instrumentalizes understanding as the operator and man manipulator of logical causal, causal relations. Reason or buddhi can in principle never be subordinate to instrumentalization as her ontological rank not only transcends both ego, ahankara, and understanding or manas in the process of the dialectic integration into the ontological substratum. Ratio or understanding as the handmaiden of ego-guided control and power drives its fragmenting wedge into the phenomenal world of property and from its fragments creates assemblages of, sec of a second nature. The power that drives this wedge into the personal world is desire or libido as an aspect of property as we have seen above. Desire, as Deleuze points out, does not originate in a deficiency or a dearth but is rather a productive force that is accumulating in increasingly complex assemblages, be they organisms, companies, industries, financial markets, or any other unity that operates more or less coherently, all enhancing their general tendency towards becoming what the most called desiring machines, looking for ever new possibilities to expand and multiply their power. Horkheimer, in an interview in 1969, says, the imminent logic of the development of society points towards a final stage of the life totally engineered. Technical rationality merges with the rationality of power itself. In other words, technical progress becomes an instrument serving those in power rather than the well-being of those who ruled. <coughs> Let me now briefly turn to the parallels of Yoga Sankhya and the analytical philosophy of Yoga. These may be indeed drawn between the concepts of self and Atman, Purusha, Ego, Ahankara, and the psychodynamics of the transcendent function or individuation, respectively. Ahankara, as its etymology of eye-maker implies, is dynamically construed. It is dynamic in the sense that it has to adapt and sustain its sense of unity in the process of permanent negotiation with the other, the outside world, and most crucially, for psychoanalytical considerations, the unconscious. Lama Anagarika Govinda, a German who became a Buddhist monk after World War I, says in the psychological attitude of early Buddhist philosophy about this process, life has two fundamental tendencies. The one is contraction, centralization, the other expansion. The former one acts in a centripetal way the latter one in a centrifugal world. The one means unification, the other differentiation or growth. The faculty of growth depends on assimilation, which may be bodily, as in the case of food, respiration, or mental, as in the case of sense perception, ideas, etc. The faculty of centralization depends on discrimination between the things that are similar or can be made similar <coughs> to an individual organism or center of activity and those which cannot be assimilated. Psychologically speaking, it is the ahankara, the principle of individuationis, that which says I, and enables an individual to be conscious of itself. 
As long as this principium individuationis is in balance with the principle of assimilation, as long as it is acting as a regular regulating force, there will be harmony. As soon, however, as this principle outgrows its own function and develops a hypertrophic eye consciousness which constructs an unchangeable entity, an absolute self or permanent ego in contrast to the rest of the world, the inner balance is destroyed and reality appears in a distorted form. It is exactly this permanent process of negotiating this fluid equilibrium, also between conscious and unconscious dispositions, that seems to go well with postmodern, in particular also Deleuzean conceptions of identity construction. Carl Gustav Jung refers to this process of negotiating the conscious and unconscious currents of our identity, as said before, as the transcendental function and the process of individuation that he considers to be to be indispensable in order for a person to achieve a dynamic synchronization with its original catalyst of identity, the self. As mentioned above, Jung says that the purpose, quote, the purpose of individuation is no other than that of liberating the self from the false veils of the persona on the one hand and from the suggestive power of subconscious images on the other. Although it might sound far-fetched, but individuation could well be framed as a practical tool to bring about what Kant describes as the human being's emergence from a self-incurred minority, in particular if seen in the context of education that increasingly tends to be confined to a training of mere technical utilitarian purposes at the expense of the humanities that do indeed provide a much wider framework for reflecting, for instance, technological developments and their impact on societies and individuals. And now I'm already closing. Now to conclude, let me briefly turn to Heidegger's approach to the question of technology. Heidegger approaches the question of technology not from a moral perspective, but from an existential one. His primary concern with technology is not whether it's used responsibly or to the detriment of human beings and nature, for instance, he does not primarily argue for a, for a civil or against the military use of nuclear energy. He thinks that this kind of thinking is at best only going halfway. What is necessary is to lay bare for him, what is necessary is to lay bare the origins of technology which, which exist long before becoming manifest in the form of actual devices as a particular way of being in the world. Heidegger argues, argues that the entire way of thinking and being is now infiltrated and dominated by the calculating mode of scientific thought and technological control, that it requires what he terms the care, the term, the reversal, a radical term that not only takes place within ourselves, but also instigates and meaningfully guides our interfering with and shaping of the world. This in turn, this term is foremost a spiritual term, in that it requires us to widen the hiatus of reflection in Yoga Sankhya considered to be indispensable for unfolding our self-liberating potential, a hiatus that may also be made productive in asking the basic questions of human existence because this is, because this is after all, an indispensable part of what it means to be human. Thank you very much.